Well, good morning. Let's open our Bibles. Everybody say word. It's our first word of the 2019 season. Now, this is big time. Uh, open your Bibles to chapter 77 of the book of Psalms. Everybody say word. word. Bam. Okay, so here's the deal. It's 2019. Cowboys won. And he... Going all the way to the Super Bowl. Maybe biting off a little bit more than we can chew. Uh, we got a bear spanning back. And you got a Chargers fan up front. You got to have, yeah, everybody's got to cheer for somebody. Little diversity, that's exactly right. God loves us all. Okay, you know, so here's the deal. So we enter into 2019, and there's all this ambition and all this excitement. We're going we're gonna to save a bunch of money. We're going to lose a bunch of weight, and we're going to be, like, super, uber successful. And we have this optimistic view of this new year, and, and that's great. And, and I know you're coming, you're like, give me an optimistic message, and so I'm talking on sorrow and suffering and pain. Why would I do that? Because here's the reality. For 2018, maybe for some of us, it wasn't as joyous and exciting. Maybe it was a grind. Maybe it was hard or difficult. Maybe you faced suffering. Maybe you're there now. And, and, well, I can guarantee in the future you will face it. And so this is a very real discussion that we're having. And it really will prove to be beneficial to you in seasons of sorrow and suffering, whether in the future or present or even as you try to process what you've experienced in the past. And so I'm going to start this morning with a series of questions, and they have a way of peeling away the veneer and exposing us in a raw and honest way. I want you to weigh these in your heart. Have you ever felt rejected by God? Have you ever felt like he has led you into impossible circumstances only to abandon you in your greatest hour of need? Have you ever been so anxious and worried that you were robbed of rest, unable to eat or sleep or even speak? Have you ever been in a season where you began to question the goodness of God, His faithfulness, His grace, or even His loyal love for you? Have you ever been to a place where even meditating on the Scriptures, or talking about God, or reading the Bible, all it does is make you almost feel worse? Where there's this, this reality where, where we read in the Scriptures and what we're experiencing in our life, they don't seem to go together where what we know of God and what we are seeing in our circumstances don't seem to be consistent. And we are left to wonder, has God's word lied to us? Or maybe we misunderstood who he was, or maybe he doesn't care, or he's not capable, or he's just abandoned and forsaken us. If you can answer yes to any of those questions, or if you've ever felt or close to any of these concepts, well, then I want to tell you, you're going to be really able to relate to the words of a sort of obscure psalmist, a guy by the name of Asaph that we were introduced to last week. Asaph was in a season of incredible sorrow or struggle or difficult. We really don't know what he was facing. But I'm, I'm very grateful that he was authentic enough and honest enough to preserve where he was at in, in the written word. 
he began to feel abandoned, and he climbed into this pit of doubt and soul sorrow, and it, and it never seemed to end. I don't know if you've ever been in a season of sorrow or difficulty or pain, and, and where you're experiencing now and what you see in the future, is, is, it's never going to get better. That's where Asaph was, Psalm 77. Let, let's look there. The more that Asaph focused on his circumstances, man, the bigger they got. And really, as he focused on those circumstances, and as they began to grow, the, the smaller and smaller God got. He writes, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. There are times where our prayers are so urgent. They must be spoken out loud. Literally a cry is heard. In the night my hand is stretched out without wearying my soul, refusing to be comforted. When I remember God, all oh, the comfort of remembering God now brings just moaning. When I meditate, my spirit faints, Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled I can't even speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me remember back when things were good. Let me meditate on those times. Let me meditate in my heart. But even then, looking back on merry times and times of sorrow, at times just inflates the pain. Yeah, it was good then. But those days are past. The psalmist writes, let me make a diligent search. He climbs into the basement of utter despair. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all times? Has he forgotten to be gracious? I don't know if you've ever been in a time in your life where you felt like the red-headed stepchild of heaven. And, and I realize some of us may be a red-headed stepchild. And I'm not doing that to pick on you. We're like God's goodness and his grace and his love is preserved for somebody else. But all you get is maybe, maybe it's anger or it's neglect. Has he in his anger shut up compassion? Selah. The end of that movement of music. Asaph plummets into the pit of utter despair. He begs for God to intervene in what seemed like a never-ending season. And Asaph is here. He's giving up hope. And he assumes that this, this wonderful river of grace and mercy and loyal love that had been so satisfying in seasons past is now all but dried up. The river no longer flowing. He could see no hope in the present, and there was no hope for anything to change in the near future. And maybe that is where you are right now. Maybe as you look at your present moment, you're just going, I, I don't find any hope in this present moment. I don't foresee anything changing. Maybe you're not there. Maybe you've been there. But I will say, and you may be sitting here thinking, oh, that doesn't, ah, I'm never going to go there. We all visit this place. It's the inevitability of suffering and sorrow. 
I made mention of this last week. Sometimes we, we believe that suffering and sorrow is somehow inconsistent with our walk with God, but let me let you in on what the scriptures really teach, that suffering and sorrow is part of the journey. So what do we do? Where we find no hope in the present, no hope in the future, and I have a principle for you. It's not so much of advice. Advice is cheap. This is tested and tried. The saints throughout history. If you can find no hope in the moment and no hope in the near future, then ransack the past. Ransack the past until you see the profound power and movement of God on behalf of his saints throughout history. Ransack the past and continue to grab a hold of and do not let go of every single story of salvation and redemption in the scriptures. Ransack the past until you are so convinced at the core of your being that the God who has moved mightily in the lives of his saints is the same God who is going to move mightily in your life today. In fact, we do need to get to a place where we stop viewing God through the lenses of our circumstances because family, when we look at God through our circumstances, what happens is, is our circumstances get magnified. They get bigger. And the smaller God gets. We need to get to a place where we start to see God as over our circumstances, the God who is over it all. And as we see God that way, he is magnified. And our faith grows. Courage rises. We need to be able to see through eyes of faith that no matter what we are facing, that God's character never changes. We are not forgotten. We are not forsaken. And so the psalmist does what is, what is so, so difficult in times of suffering and sorrow and pain. He turns his eyes away from it. And he begins to focus his whole being on God. And I'm going to tell you, this is hard. Because when we're in suffering and sorrow and pain, all we can see is that because we feel that and we're like, we want it to end. We'll do anything to make the pain stop. And the idea of turning away from it and not focusing on it seems so counter to what we're feeling emotionally. The psalmist does what is so difficult to do. He turns his attention directly from his suffering and he begins to focus his attention on God when he writes this. Then I said, I will appeal to this. I will turn to this. I will focus on this. To the years of the right hand of the Most High. That is when God moves powerfully. He says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work. I will meditate on your mighty deeds. I will remember. I will remember. I will ponder. I will meditate. He starts to ransack the past. He says, your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You see how God is being magnified? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the people. Another way of saying that is God has flexed his muscles before the people for all to see. 
He has moved powerfully with your arm. You redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. And so the psalmist goes back, he starts to ransack the past, and he grabs a hold of the greatest story of salvation that he knew. In fact, the psalmist opens his Bible, which is a, it's a great place to go in seasons of suffering and sorrow. He opens his Bible to the most profound passage of salvation in, in, in the scriptures that he knew of to a time in history when God powerfully, when God powerfully delivered his people, Israel, from the bondage of Egypt. There's a time, and I, and I would assume in most of our lives, where you can look back and you can say, Jesus saved my life. I've been redeemed. He looks back on this moment of salvation when Israel is delivered from bondage. And then they are led into their most certain death. And there are times where we look back on our salvation, how God has saved our life, and we cannot figure out why his plan involves what we're facing at the moment. What may even appear to be our certain death. The psalmist turns to the book of Exodus, and so will we. And in fact, Psalm 77 can be overlaid over Exodus 14. And so turn in your Bibles to Exodus. We're going to be in Exodus 14 and give us a little bit of foundation. But the psalmist goes back to the book of Exodus. To a time and a place when God powerfully moved on behalf of his people. And he's going to then apply that to his account. He's going to say, if God worked powerfully in the lives of the people of Israel at this time, he's going to work powerfully in my life. And his faith grew. So a little bit of context. When you turn to the book of Exodus, uh, the people of Israel have been in the land of Egypt for 400 years. You get to the first lines of Exodus. Closing the book of Genesis and opening up Exodus is a 400-year period. And over that 400-year period, the children of Israel have grown exponentially, and the favor that they once had when Joseph was second under Pharaoh has ceased. They are no longer seen as a blessing. They are seen as a threat. And so the scriptures tell us that they are now enslaved, they are bitterly and brutally treated, and the people of Israel cry out under the heavy hand of the taskmaster. They cry out to God, remember your covenant. And in time, God did raise up a deliverer. Can anybody else, what, what was the name of the deliverer in the book of Exodus? Who? Moses, good old Mo. You guys know Mo, right? God raises up Moses. And early on, Moses tried to take this deliverance into his own hand, and he strikes an Egyptian, and he buries him in the sand, and he comes to realize that's not God's plan, purpose, way, or will at that time. And he goes into hiding for 40 years, and he's on the backside of the middle of nowhere, Sinai wilderness. And he's thinking, God has forsaken me, I've been forgotten. So one day he sees a a bush, and it's on fire, but it's not consumed. He's like, that's odd. And he's engaged. And he walks up, and he hears a voice, the angel of God speaks. Take off your sandals, for where you're standing is holy. And then this conversation between God and Moses and Susan, it's a long conversation, and there's a back and forth kind of discussion that goes on in Exodus chapter 3. But I want to bring your attention to Exodus 3, verses 7 through 8, because God relays his plan. And maybe in this, you might see his plan for your life too. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have 
heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of all those ites. Isn't that wonderful? And sometimes when we're reading these passages, we just kind of like blow right through them and we miss these incredible nuggets. And so I want to highlight what God is saying to Moses. He says, I have seen your affliction. I have heard your cry. I know your suffering. I'm acquainted with your suffering. I've come down to deliver you. I'm going to bring you to a good land flowing with milk and honey and you know, and as much as these words were specifically for the people of Israel, and they are, the same could be said for us. As the people of God, God has seen our affliction. He has heard our cry. He knows our suffering. He has come down to deliver us. Who came down to deliver us? Y'all over here getting nay. I don't know what's happening over here. A lot of quietness over here. You know what I mean? Who came down to deliver us? What is the answer to every single question in Sunday school? There you go. He has come down to deliver us. And it's not just to deliver us for our ultimate salvation, which it is. There's a lot of many salvations along the way. He is going to bring us, ultimately, to this good land, as the old hymnist used to write, across the Jordan. There are going to be all kinds of salvations along the way. This is powerful, incredible revelation and promise to the people of Israel. And so there's this back and forth between Mo and, and God, and God finally gets his way, and Mo's finally like, consents, and he goes and delivers the word, and just a cursory reading. And I encourage you to read Exodus 3 through 12, because you're going to come to see it's not that easy. Like God says, I have seen, I have heard, I, I know, and, and, and I'm going to come to deliver you, but it's just not that easy. Through a series of plagues, God progressively demonstrates his authority over heaven and earth and his superiority over all of the false gods of Egypt. But you will come to see that the lives of the Israelites didn't get better. In fact, in the short term, they got worse. The more the plagues were poured out on Egypt, the more the Pharaoh plagued the people of Israel. To the point where, multiple times, the people of Israel cried out in anguish because of their circumstances. They got worse. The more they doubted, the more they questioned and challenged the supposed word from God. There are times where our circumstances will lie to us and will lead us to question God's word to us. His promises that have been made. And in fact, there was a point where even Moses is like, oh, this is so hard, just kill me. In the middle of it. In the middle of the deliverance and the, the setting free from bondage, Moses is like, dude, I just can't handle it anymore. Just kill me. Just take me out. But through the course of time and the unfolding of the ten plagues, capped by the plague of the firstborn and the Passover, God powerfully delivered his people. Family, God keeps his promises, is what we see through uh, Exodus 3 through 12. And ultimately, all Israel and a mixed multitude were led out the night of Passover. The scriptures say 600,000 Israelite men, along with children and women and the mixed multitude, we're, we're probably thinking a couple million people. And it's powerful how God leads them. There's this wonderful little nugget, and there's times where I read this and I'm like, oh, this would be so cool. Oh, that'd be so great. 
chapter 13. You might want to highlight this in your Bible. Verses 21 through 22, this is how the Lord led them. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud and led them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and night. The pillar of the cloud in the day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from the people uh, of Israel. And I read that and I'm like, ah, oh, that would be so great. Can you imagine going through your life, hey, do you know what God's will is for your life? Oh, actually, yeah, there's this pillar of cloud and I'm going to follow it. And then at night, it's a pillar of fire. And at times, I'm like, gosh, why can't we have that? You ever wonder that? Wouldn't it be nice to know God's will? All you had to do was follow this pillar. But then, you know what? I look at the people of Israel, and they really struggle with that. Wasn't that easy? And then I realize we have something greater than the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire. We actually have the indwelling Holy Spirit of God in us. And we have the completed scriptures that lead us and guide us. We have what the Israelites do not. But it's fascinating to me where God led the people of Israel immediately. Because we think to a land, good, broad, flowing with milk and honey. Uh-uh-uh. That's not exactly where he led them first. In fact, he led them to their certain death. He led them to a place where they were facing a, a, an army uh, from behind. And then there's pressure ahead. Death by army or death by certain drowning. And they're like being squeezed in the middle. I don't know if you've ever been squeezed in the middle of circumstances. Where like what you're facing now and what you're facing in the future is just like squeezing you. You can barely take a breath. Exodus 14. And I'm just going to kind of let the story tell itself the text of scripture sometimes we just need to turn to the scriptures and allow them to speak to us you don't always have to have a preacher telling you what the scriptures say you're invited into the text of scripture then the lord said to moses hey tell the people of israel to turn back and encamp in front of pihariah between migdal and the sea in front of baal zaphon you shall camp facing it by the sea and of course you guys know exactly where that's at and i know right now you're wishing i had a map a map where's the map there's always a map there's no map so here's what you just need to grasp in your mind. They're in a, a place where they are facing a, a sea, and it's kind of hemming them in. And then the natural topography and the landscape is almost creating the amphitheater where they're ultimately trapped. God is setting a trap, and guess who's the bait? Israel. Hold on one second. Let's look at this. For Pharaoh will say to the people, say of the people, they are wandering in the land, and the wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Here's the deal. God has a plan. And when you're in the midst of circumstances, it's going to be really hard to trust that. And you're going to feel like things are totally out of control. But the reality is God has a plan. And his plan was to get ultimate victory over Egypt. Here's the reality. Egypt never lets go. Egypt will never stop pursuing. Your Egypt will never stop pursuing you. What you have been saved from will never stop pursuing until it is completely destroyed. And that is the cross. But our Egypts never stop. And Egypt was never going to stop pursuing Israel. They were always going to try to get them back. And so God says, I'm going to get the ultimate glory. And guess what? Above our circumstances is God's ultimate glory. Did you know God is more concerned with our character development than our circumstantial comfort? There are times where God will lead us into impossible situations so he gets the glory when we're ultimately delivered. So Pharaoh takes the bait, verse 5, when king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, his mind and his servants was changed towards the people. They repented of letting them go. 
And they're like, what is this we have done? We've let go of all this free labor. Oh, we got to go get them back. In fact, we've let Israel go from serving him. So verse 6, so he made ready his chariot and he took his army with him. There's something that scriptures talk about when it comes to those who, in their arrogance, try to fight against the Lord. Some trust in chariots, some in horses. But we will trust in the Lord our God. And there are times where you'll face what it seems to be an insurmountable army. But we forget who is on our side is greater than our adversary. The scriptures say that Pharaoh trusts in his army. He took 600 chosen chariots that was like the top of the line tech, military speaking, militarily speaking, and all the other chariots of Egypt and the officers over them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel going out defiantly. Y'all, there's times where you got to just defy your previous life. you got to go out defiantly. And they're going to continue to try to make you submit to it. Be delivered. Pharaoh had the most advanced military in the world. They were experts in war, wielding unmatched skill in charioting and swords and spears and strategy. Verse 9, the Egyptians pursued them. All Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army overtook them and camped by the sea at Pi Harioth in front of Baal Zephon, and they are trapped. In front of them is the sea, and behind them is the most formidable army the world had ever known. And so the children of Israel, they lift their eyes up. And all they can see is their circumstances. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they said, oh, awesome. God is going to deliver us. We don't know how it's going to be, but it's going to be awesome. No, in fact, the scriptures say they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to have remained in bondage. Isn't that crazy how our current circumstances lends us to, like, redefine the past? Oh, it wasn't so bad back then. It was kind of sweet in Egypt, man. Ah, yeah, we had some taskmasters or whatever, but it wasn't this bad. We're going to die. Listen to the words. Uh, they lifted up their eyes. The Egyptians were marching after them. They responded. They feared greatly. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They blame Moses. Why do you think they blame Moses? Because he's the only person they could think of to blame. Who are they really blaming? God. There are times where we'll blame all sorts of people. We'll blame ourselves. We'll blame others. We'll blame that person. It's always somebody else's fault. But who are we really blaming? We're blaming God. Why have you led me to this? You should have left us in Egypt. You should have left us in bondage. We're going to die in the wilderness. Their circumstances lie. And I love Moses. He's like this one voice of encouragement. And Moses turns to the people. He says, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. I love that. He's like, hey, just be quiet. <laughs> I've heard enough. It reminds me of a time when I was in seminary. I had to step down from a position um, with a particular company, and I just could not attach my name to the way the, the, the resources were being allocated. And, and so I stepped down, but I didn't have another job. 
I had a couple little kids, a mortgage, all that, and, and uh, I'd love to tell you that, like, immediately the next door opened, because I, I took a stand for what's right, right, you know, that's not what happened, that's not what happened at all, month after month went by, no job opportunity, no door opening, and the, and the farther I got down the road, I was like, huh, so you took us this far to drop us, awesome, and one particular day, I distinctly remember the Lord, I, I was like led to Psalm 4610. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And I closed my eyes and for about three seconds felt at peace. And then in my mind, all I could see is a foreclosure sign swinging softly in the wind in front of our house. And I was robbed of rest. And I immediately began to panic and in fear started to strategize and figure it out. And, and, and I like to tell you that went on for like a couple hours and I got better. No, it went on for weeks. And so one day God like revealed part of his plan and at the time it did not make any flipping sense at all. It was like, I'm going to start cutting grass. I was like, what am I, 16? Can't support a family? Cutting grass isn't a summer job. But then I was like, okay. So I started this lawn business with a, with a residential push lawnmower, a, a push broom, and a dream. <laughs> and I'd love to tell you that it, like immediately everything started falling into place. But I can tell you over seasons and over that season and over the next season and over the next season, God continually was faithful. And I can tell you, looking back now, all of the fear, all of the anxiety, all of the stress, all of the doubts, was a complete waste of emotional energy. Because literally, I could have taken this verse, be still and know that I am God, and I could have rested on that. His word can be trusted. So the people of Israel panic. The Lord says to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Of course. Everyone saw that coming, right? Go forward. There just happens to be a sea there. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it that the people of Israel may go through on dry ground. We're so familiar with the story. We're like, of course they go through the sea on dry ground. Dry ground. So literally, God's saying, stretch out your staff. I'm going to part the sea. There wouldn't even be a mud puddle. Like, there wouldn't be a, there would be no mud. There'd be nothing to hinder. It'd be a highway through the sea. And he says, I will harden the Egyptians so that they'll go in after you. And I'll get the glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, who, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen. And we're like, whoa, I never saw that coming. And so that very night, God moves from guide to guardian. I love this picture. There's times where we feel like so unsafe and so chaotic. I just want to tell you, you've never been safer. We're in the will of God. You are, you are protected. Verse 19, the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. The Bible Knowledge Commentary writes this, The angel shifted from guide to guardian all through that night. The pillar of cloud, which had also moved to the rear to be between the two camps, brought such darkness that military advance was impossible for the Egyptians. God said, you go no farther until it's time, then I'll let you go. The trap is set. And so 
Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove back the sea by the strong east wind all that night and made the sea dry ground, and the waters were divided. When the sea becomes dry ground, like wall of water on the right and a wall of water on the left, and two million some odd people are walking through. Can you imagine that fisherman who's just like, whoa, there's fish right there. That's so crazy. I don't know if they were thinking of fishing, but they were walking through on dry ground. No one saw that coming. And the scriptures state, and the people of Israel went through the sea on dry ground and the waters to a wall on their right hand and on their left. And in Psalm 77, verse 16, the psalmist writes, When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. And indeed the deep trembled, verse 19. Your way was through the sea. Your path was through the great waters. You see how the psalmist is encouraging his own heart through Exodus 14? Yet your footprints were unseen. The psalmist right now is going, I, I don't see you moving, but I'm going to trust that your footprints that are unseen, you are leading me. And just like in that season where I thought, God, you got to change my circumstances. you got to give me a job. you got to make things better. No, he didn't like lead me around it. He didn't like lead me in this path around the difficulty. He plowed us right through the middle of it. He says, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And that's exactly what happened. And the Egyptians did pursue. And that next morning, the Lord told Moses to stretch out his staff. And the water swallowed the Egyptian force that was their certain death. And they made it to the other side of the sea. And they were saved. And I just have a question for you. What is your general response when God powerfully moves on your behalf and you were saved? y'all don't know what that is, that's the running man. It was big back in 95, the last time the Cowboys won a playoff game. Was it, was it 95? Oh, we won in 2015. Well, the running man doesn't really apply to them then. But nonetheless, that's what we feel like. For like a week. And then we're like, where are you, God? The reality is he, is, he is with us, and he is for us. Look at Exodus 14, verses 30 through 31. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day. That word saved, it, it takes into the mind that, that concept of pressure from behind and from in front, where we're being squeezed, and God saves. From the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore, and Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, and so the people feared the Lord, and they believed. They believed in the Lord. And my encouragement is to you, when you see God powerfully move in your life and in the lives of others, oh, may you fear Him, and may your faith grow. There have been many of us who have been in times of trial and suffering. We've cried out to God, God, if you're real. If you're real, Lord, it's deliver me. And, and then I'll follow you. And he delivers. And sometimes the temptation is, okay, I'll call you next time I need you. Oh, may you take that time, that opportunity to realize he has moved in your life. May it lead you to fear him and believe in him. Talk about a few applications. First, the promises of God, they are stout. They're strong. 
He tells the people of Israel, he tells us, I've seen your affliction, I have heard your cry, I know your sufferings. Oh, what a comfort for those who suffer around the world, the persecuted church, I know your sufferings. While we sit and soak, there are Christians around the world who are being persecuted for their faith. I know your sufferings. I've come down to deliver you. I'll bring you to a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey. That does not mean it's going to be easy in this life. And that does not mean we're not going to face conflict or difficulty or sorrow or pain. And at times it's going to feel like, it's going to feel like God has forsaken us. It's going to feel like he's forsaken us in our marriage. He's going to feel like he's forsaken us in our relationships. He's going to feel like he's forsaken us in our professional life. It's going to feel like he's forsaken us in our spiritual life. That's why I want to tell you right now, I want you to write this down. I want you to hold on to this, that circumstances are going to lie. And the more we view God through our circumstances, the bigger the circumstances are get, the bigger the pain is going to get. And I just want to encourage you with this, this piece of, of principle or advice. I'll get advice, it's cheap. Um, when you're in a season of sorrow, suffering, or trial, and, and everything seems chaotic, and I, do not make major life decisions then. That is not the time to make major life decisions. That's not the time to launch missiles downrange. That is the time to be still and to wait. But there are times where we lift up our eyes and the enemy's marching after us and we greatly fear and we cry out to the Lord. We blame others and self and God and, and this thought like, oh yeah, you saved me, but you just brought me out here to drop me. Listen to Moses' wisdom. And I think this is applicable for the whole year. This is stout stuff. Don't be afraid. Mm. Stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. The psalmist reflected on his sorrow and fears and doubts and, and those of the Israelites, and he saw his own sorrow and he saw his own fears and his doubts, and maybe you too through this have seen your own sorrow fear or doubt. I hope that we've also come to see that all of our fears and all of our doubting and grumbling and blaming and questioning of God's goodness and this deeply felt insecurity as it relates to the purposes and plans that God has for us in those times where we're just feeling like he's taken us to drop us, all of that is unfounded. We're allowing our circumstances to lie because when God leads us to stand before the sea of sorrow, with the crashing waves of doubt, with the army of our anxiety and fear and sadness gaining on our footsteps, and we are sure that this is the end. We shall, in fact, not be swallowed by the sea now, nor shall we fall by the assaulting army. We shall witness the powerful work of God where the sea becomes dry ground and he leads us through the sorrow. What we are sure is our certain death has actually, in fact, worked out to be our certain salvation. These words strengthen you, encourage you. May there be some healing. Lord, we come before you. So often in life, we are faced with circumstances and situations that seem inconsistent with your goodness and your love for us. You've promised to be our shepherd. Lead us by still waters, cool green grass where we may lie. 
You have also told us that there are going to be shadows of the valley that will feel like death. Even there you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. Friend, please listen. With our eyes closed, our heads bowed, the promises that I've spoken of this morning are promises that are for his children, his believers, his followers. If you've not received Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, these are not promises that you can grab a hold of. The Bible declares that we all sin, we're all separated from God. And the only way to be brought into a relationship of his shepherding where we are following him, where we are protected by him is is through faith in his son, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He was buried and he is risen. And the Bible declares that all who believe in him, all who trust in his work on the cross will be saved. I want nothing more for you and your heart to trust in what Christ has done for you, but it is a decision you must make. If it is your heart to receive Jesus as your Savior, in the quietness of your heart, tell him, Lord Jesus, I believe. I believe that you died for me. I believe you were buried and have risen. Please, Jesus, save my life. If that is truly your heart's prayer, the Bible declares you just passed from death to life. You are now forever a son or a daughter of God and all and all of the promises is yours. They are yours. Welcome to the family. To you who may be going through a season of sorrow and suffering and in the quietness of your heart, maybe you're feeling defeated and forsaken and forgotten. In the quietness of your heart, tell him, Lord, I feel forsaken and forgotten. Please, God, elevate my eyes to see you more clearly. Please give me courage, faith. Grow my faith today, Father. I may trust in you more. We pray for salvation every day. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.